0: You call yourself the state, Mr. Smiley. You have no place among real people. You dropped a bomb from the sky. Don't come down here and look at the blood or hear the scream. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. Uh, I'm John. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genre Podcast. At the moment, our theme is spy novels. All right, so far we have read Ian Fleming's James Bond novel, Live and Let Die. Our Man in Havana by Graham Greene and The 39 Steps by John Buchan. This week we're reading Call for the Dead by John Le Carre. So what do you guys think of this book?
1: Incredible. Excellent writing. I love this book. Great characterization. I think it's some of the best characterization in our spy novels that we've read so far. We've seen characters, especially in 39 Steps, change a lot, also in our our man in Havana. We see the protagonist become a totally different person. But here we see all the characters change. All the characters have major stakes or major roles in this book. There's no real side characters. There's just major powers. So
0: which characters are you thinking of here then? Because there are, as you mentioned, there are
1: quite a few. George Smiley, our toad, he's described as someone who's, <laughs> he's no dapper James Bond. He he looks like a toad.
2: Yeah, immediately he's described as having a short, fat, quiet disposition. Yeah. Uh, chubby hands, you know, and.
1: I like when he's, when he's going to meet his wife. It says, uh, and Smiley, he waddled down the aisle in search of the kiss that would turn him into a prince. <laughs> so he has a beautiful wife and he himself looks like a toad.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think there's also a great line about his appearance where it says, it looks like he spends a lot of money on clothes
2: that don't fit him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such an interesting contrast to other kind of like protagonist figures in spy novels that we've read before. I mean, thinking back to like 39 Steps, John Bookin, a person is a master of disguise. And the way he disguises himself is just putting on other people's clothes and he immediately becomes that person, or at least that role in the society. You know, like he'll put on a highwayman's outfit and everyone will mistake him for truly being a highwayman. James Bond, less so about the disguises, more so just about looking really good, really
1: manly
2: (laughs) all the time, you know. He has excellent taste not only in food, but also in, in, you know, clothing. Uh, And even, like, I would say his, his like, destinations, his, like, world traveler aspect of james bond fits into this whole picture but then smiley's here he looks ugly he's he he's squat he has ill-fitting clothes he's actually not really allowed to travel for the sake of the suspicion that his cover has been blown and he would be like immediately killed if he if he left the country but then also like relationship wise he has a completely unfaithful wife named Anne. And it's really interesting how like this is, this is our protagonist and he's kind of, I don't know, drifting in the emotional turbulent sea of, of being somewhat like semi-recently left by his wife for a Cuban race car driver.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And does this sense really that this is the defining aspect of his personality at the moment? Like his ex-wife, Anne, just seems to have taken something
2: very essential from him. How would you characterize his feelings towards this? Like, not towards, towards her, towards the event, towards the race car driver. Like, what, what's, what's, his, what's in his head? Well, I think he, he, he says multiple times that he feels like he's been
0: sort of, like, left on the shelf. He said that Anne, uh, there's a quote here, he says, Anne has robbed him of his peace. Anne, who had once made the present so important and taught him the habit of reality. And when she went, there was nothing. Hmm. So there's really this sense that he feels kind of hollowed out, like there's nothing left for him, that he's meaningless. And he speaks always about, you know, being left on the shelf now. And he speaks about, oh, well, you know, if I lose my job at the circus, then I'm not even going to be employable. So he's really kind of like in a very lonely position in his life. And he feels quite hopeless, it seems like.
1: Yeah, he does feel really hopeless. And even when he first becomes a spy, he talks about never being able to sleep again, never feeling... At home or safe again and he starts looking for refuge in drugs and alcohol when he's younger and he starts to feel completely hollow until the point where that's when they say okay you can't you can't travel anymore we're going to kind of pull your cover you're now going to work more or less behind a desk and when we hear him narrating himself he's he does he's not attractive at all like he does not seem like he would be a good spy he seems to be almost a boob like our man in Havana the spy there where things are just happening around him and he gets credit for things he's not doing but then as we meet other spies everyone really likes Smiley mm. multiple characters call him the best i've ever worked with and the spies that he eventually trains end up being like superhuman James Bond like figures so even though Smiley is like a frumpy toad, he's making these, he's producing James Bond.
0: And it's, well, yeah, it's funny because that is kind of his job. He's what they call, what is it, like an agent runner? I think they call it maybe, where his job is mainly to sort of recruit younger agents and sound them out and to test them and see who's got what it takes to be a great spy, which hmm. puts him in a curious position where he's held in very high regard by a lot of people. But in and of himself, he's not that much. Like he, he's, his value is in what, other people he brings to the company and in his ability to observe and to use other people. But he himself, as an individual, seems to contain very little value and even, I would argue, very little identity. Hmm. There's a quote here quite early in the novel where it says that Smiley, without school, parents, regiment or trade, without wealth or poverty, traveled without labels in the guard's van of the social express and soon became lost luggage, destined when the divorce had come and gone, to remain unclaimed on the dusty shelf of yesterday's news. So just set this sense where almost his anonymity is what makes him effective as an agent, but at the same time, it seems to give him no respite from his own misery
2: when the job is done, as it were. Hmm. Yeah, and and it seems like I'm also picking up this element of the effect of his wife leaving him has in some sense fortified his kind of like internal psychology towards being what Mm. is required for his job. So check out this quote. This part of him was bloodless and inhuman. Smiley in this role was the international mercenary of his trade, amoral and without motive beyond that of personal gratification. Conversely, it saddened him to witness in himself the gradual death of natural pleasure. Always withdrawn, he now found himself shrinking from the temptations of friendship and human loyalty. He guarded himself warily from spontaneous reaction. So there's this sense in which like he's almost like this hollow shell of a person. And I can't help but think that his physical description of being toad-like mm. has actually like, like his psychology has come to mirror that of like the reptile. Oh, you know really? what I mean? You just mm. you, you can just like imagine him like looking out from behind his glasses and just like watching the world, and the only, you know, bloodless and inhuman, it describes him. Yeah, cold and calculating. It's interesting.
1: I think the picking up on the, emphasizing that he's reptilian or amphibian or some kind of sea creature, like a frog, is what he has. I mean, it's, it's a weird identity, and it's almost like a non-identity, but it's also what he uses in his spy techniques. Although he is a spy handler, he also, on a date with Anne, tells Anne about his chameleon armadillo technique. And so he... Oh, yes. Yes, a wonderful (laughs) technique. And she even says, You mean you sat there burping, you rude toad? Smiley says, No, it's a matter of color. Chameleons change color. So he explains that when he's interviewing someone, which he does often do, trying to get information from someone, he will try to mirror their social status. So just like a friend... He's going to be a chameleon to mimic this person to so the person who feel comfortable and spill. Then what he does, and I don't understand the armadillo thing.
2: Yeah, I understood the armadillo technique. I mean, armadillos being these kind of like armored animals, mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and I, I understood it to be something along the lines of like, he changes his psychology to view the other person as like insignificant or ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That way, anything they say just kind of like bounces off of him. And he puts himself emotionally in this position where they can't really... Touch him, or like, how how would you put this? Like, like their position. If you imagine them as like the interview as two competing power interests, mm-hmm. you know, he is in a position where they can't affect him.
1: Ah, okay. Let me let me read a quote here. I think you're right in what you've just said. Here's the quote that supports that. But by contemplating the bishop's face and imagining that under my gaze. It became covered in thick fur. I maintained the ascendancy, just like you said. And then he says, from then on, the skill grew. I could turn him into an ape, get him stuck in sash windows, send him naked to Masonic banquets. So, yeah, he becomes indifferent to their status. Something interesting I just noticed oh, as like well.
2: dehumanizing them.
1: Almost. Yeah, something interesting I just noticed
2: as well
0: with the way he described him there is at the end of the book, that's exactly the way he describes his wife's Cuban race car lover. He describes yeah. him in quite... Oh. Like, honestly quite like distasteful terms he talks to him being like, about him being like an ape that's you know having like hairy arms and stuff like he really really you know understandably he doesn't like this guy but his descriptions kind of border on the straight out racist to be honest with you like it's certainly clearly he's disgusted by this guy and i wonder if that is connected with his armadillo method it,
2: it is interesting how everything we know about this guy are these like hyper masculine tropes you know what I mean? Mm. Like. Who, like, yeah, if you yeah. were to say, like, all right, let's 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 come up with a caricature of a, like, manly man that Anne would be taken with. All right, well, he's a Cuban race car driver with thick, <laughs> it is you ridiculous, know, it? F- like, almost fur-like hair, you know, crawling down mm-hmm. his arms, you know.
0: <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a sense that he's, like, a total opposite of Smiley as Absolutely. well, too. It, it very much is mm-hmm. not. In touch with his animal side at all? I mean, you know, we've talked about him being a lizard and so forth, but on on some other level, he's he's very much a, an urban creature. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if he's in touch with his animal side, it's certainly a reptilian side rather than like a mammalian. Yes, species. yes. Who obviously
0: don't have fare yeah, right? yeah. Here. So I think that that is sort of like a very interesting contrast.
2: George is slippery and slimy and cold.
1: Yeah, he has no lust for life. He has the fear response of a lizard.
2: I get the sense in previous. Spy novels mm-hmm. we've read that the audience or like the, the 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 reader is there to identify with the protagonist in in many cases Bond and Buchan for example or sorry Fleming and Buchan for example and I suppose to a lesser extent the two Graham Greene novels we've read there's there's elements there that I you know it's easy to see ourselves in this situation but in like a more cynical sense perhaps. But in this book, I never got the sense that I was supposed to, like, be mm. smiley. You know what I mean? Like, he never seemed like a character that I would want, like, that was easy to fantasize myself into mm. his place. You know what I mean? Certainly. And he even speaks
0: by himself a lot in the third person. Whenever he's trying to analyze his situation, he'll sit down with a pad and pen, and he'll say, right, what are all the facts that I know? And he'll write it by himself in the third person, he'll say, okay, at uh, 9.45 p.m., Uh, George Smiley did this and so I I think there's a sense of like uh, depersonalization within his own relationship with himself as well Hmm. which again I think it makes it hard for us to relate to it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who you know in a sense is distant from themselves they're like looking at themselves from the outside in Hmm. and which is how it feels to me at times
1: I think so too and it's it's contradicts what he believes about people or what he believes about humanity he is contrasted with, there's a there's this amazing James Bond-like character named Dieter, mm. who is one of these kids mm. that he found in university and said, Dieter, you should join the Secret Service, basically. And they start working together, he becomes his best spy. And Smiley says that he believes in individuality and what individuals can do, whereas Dieter believes in, like, just the large society, the power in the society overtaking any individual freedom, just being able to create a country from clones. But Dieter is like this superhuman James Bond character, whereas Smiley seems like someone who is just tucked away in the office and could just be a clone of anyone. He's just some frumpy guy in a cubicle. So it's interesting that he believes in someone like Dieter, and Dieter believes in someone like Smiley.
0: Yeah, I thought that this was actually like, the perhaps for me, this was like the heart of the book, this relationship between Smiley and Dieter. Mm. You know, Smiley, in a sense, the mentor, and Dieter, in a sense, the mentee. But they they are such like opposite interesting contradictions to each other, like you know we've already already said about like Smiley's lack of clear identity, and yet he acknowledges that everything that he has ever admired or loved has been the product of intense individualism, yeah. and he says this is why he hates Dieter now. He says he quote hated what he stood for more strongly than ever before. It was the fabulous impertinence of renouncing the individual in favor of the mass when had mass philosophies ever brought benefit or wisdom and then he says data wants to shape the world as if it were a tree mm. cutting off what did not fit the regular image so we have here smiley lionizing the individual or at least acknowledging that his individual has brought us everything great and lamenting the fact that data who is the most probably the most remarkable person he says he's ever met? He's characterized constantly as a remarkable individual, this really outstanding, like almost transcendent force of charisma. Has renounced his individuality, or at least on the surface, in order to endorse this mass philosophy, you know, communism, which is the great enemy of the circus and George Smiley in, in these novels. Hmm. I thought that was a really interesting contrast that I think. I do think that is defining for the book, which is, I think, a morally ambiguous book, I would say, for the most part. And I think those two figures, those are kind of like the two polarities of this ambiguity.
1: Well, I felt like maybe Smiley is kind of in between in the ambiguity, too, because Dieter and mm. Mrs. Fennon seem to be pretty polar opposites. Dieter is like, let's all go under one banner. If we all have the same idea, we can create that dream by forcing it. And then Mrs. Fennon will say, if you let them... Have one slogan, if you let them have any beliefs, if you let, talking about humanity in general, if you let humanity have a dream, we'll never have peace. If you just let them, I don't know, be humans and not have one banner, there's going to be no war. But Deer is the total opposite. And Smiley believes in individualism, but he feels more ambiguous. He feels less clear.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I think about at the end of the book as well, like we've got this sort of what we've already outlined, you know, dear to the communists, so kind of with the bad guys in this book, at least. Smiley, you know, on, on fighting for like liberalism, liberal individualism and so forth and uh, the established order. So mm-hmm. these are, you know, kind of the good guys and the bad guys, but it's really not very clear in their particular relationship whether they're the good guys or the bad guys. Like at the end of the book, Smiley chases down Dieter. He ends up, killing Dieter, and he acknowledges after the fact that, oh wait, Dieter could have killed me because he had a loaded gun and he's bigger Mm -hmm. and he's stronger than me, but he didn't kill me. And Smiley, the way he puts it is this, he said Dieter had remembered and Smiley had not. What I think he means remembered here is that remembered their friendship or remembered something more important between them than, you know, ideology Mm -hmm. and ideological classes and difference differences in politics, he said that they had come from different hemispheres of the night, from different worlds of thought and conduct. Dieter, mercurial, absolute, had fought to build a civilization. Smiley, rationalistic, protective, had fought to prevent him. And then Smiley says aloud, oh God, who was then the gentleman? Was it me or was it Dieter? And this is actually the final paragraph of the book. After this is only one line in which... Smiley gets out of bed, and then the book ends. So this is really the the final thought we're left with: like, who was the gentleman? Was it yeah. Data or Was it Smiley? And it, I don't think it's at all clear how we're supposed to feel about this. It certainly doesn't seem clear to me that Lacar has a clear attitude that he wants to convey
2: in this. Yeah, and it's interesting too how it's like it's clearly not just like you know the British versus the communists, but we actually learn that so many people who are part of this department were interested in communism during the 1930s like pre World War II. I mean it's like we're talking to a bunch of people who are ex communists, like university communists whose now job is to prevent communism or like the communist party from from gaining political power. There's there's actually a good quote here. In discussing so I guess I guess we should, you know, cover the basic plot of this book uh, which is uh, that this man uh, Finnan is accused of being a, a spy in an anonymous letter. George Smiley goes and talks to him. They, you know, Smiley knows that this man was a, had communist sympathies in his university years, but says, look, you'll be, you'll be cleared. Anyways, Finnan goes home and kills himself that night and leaves a suicide note. You know, that's just the start, you know, much, much happens later. But here's, here's this quote about Finnan. It had been natural enough that Finnan should join the left at Oxford. It was the great honeymoon period of university communism, and its causes, heaven knows, lay close enough to his heart. The rise of fascism in Germany and Italy, the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, the Franco Rebellion in Spain, the slump in America, and above all the wave of anti Semitism that was sweeping across Europe. It was inevitable that Fenman should seek his it was inevitable that Fenman should seek an outlet for his anger and revulsion. Besides, the party was respectable then. The failure of the Labour Party and the coalition government had convinced many intellectuals that the communists alone could provide an, alterna- an effective alternative to capitalism and fascism. So there's a sense in which, like, it paints this, this worldview of, like, great competing ideological powers, you know, these massive events on a global stage. And the narrator, whether we're identifying that with Smiley or whether this is, like, Le Carre's own perspective— it it makes it seem like at the point in time everyone was a communist in the west like like socialism at that time was the respectable choice it was the the obvious choice of how to how to approach this world of of so many extremist ideolo- ideologies competing for power at the same time it's not clear to me that it would have been the dominant ideology but
0: it certainly wasn't a fringe ideology you know it was certainly very much a part of the conversation and something a lot of people were members of. But I don't think you would. it would constitute the dominant party because at this time, politically, there's still very much a clear... I mean, this is, you know, where the Cold War is starting to emerge. So there is quite a clear difference between the West and the Western powers and the communists. And this is best seen in Germany at this time. You know, the division of Germany is like West Germany and East Germany and even the occupation of different parts of the city of Berlin, where in the West you have the, the Western powers and then in the East you have the Soviets. And the problem... At this time period, in the late fifties and the early sixties, when the Berlin Wall was getting built, is that a lot of people from East Germany, the Soviet bloc, are defecting to the Western part because their way of their their standard of life was way better. Because well, they had a sort of capitalist uh, system, whereas in the communist system, people were struggling and starving and being subjected to a quite an authoritarian government. Whereas they had freedom and were living good lives in the West. So it's seems to me that if you're an educated person at that time, although you might acknowledge that communism has a lot of great ideas, you would still see that in real time what was playing out was that one system was giving people a decent way of life and one simply wasn't. And most people within that system were trying to defect to the Western system. So I don't think it will be clear that it was the respectable choice right. at this time. But it certainly was a big part of well, you know, the conversation.
2: Keep in mind, there's a time jump happening here because what we're talking about is Finn's university mm. so the 1930s pre World War II that's when everyone had communist sympathies because all of these major events on the world stage you know you can imagine seeing the rise of Nazi Germany and being like oh well like you, you know what is mm. the what is the opposing force that that what, what's the anti-Nazi oh well you know let's let's get really interested in socialism it's a completely different world that they're living in at this point, this, we have to presume that he's writing in real time, I suppose. So we'll say this is describing events of 1961, or at least within the, you know, the, the political situation within five years of when this book was published, very yeah. different world at that point. I think, I think it's less, I don't want to say it's less tenable, you know, to to be a communist party member at that time, but certainly you can have books that portray people who are actively working to undermine the Communist Party as heroes. You know what I mean? They've certainly, East Germany and Russia have found ways to villainize themselves in the eyes of the hmm. Western culture at this point.
1: That's that's similar to what was going on in the, the the Buchan novel, because that was then someone finding thrill in life again and finding patriotism and saying, okay, I will fight for my country. I will fight against the Nazis We've had other books fighting against communism, and especially in James Bond, it's very black and white. It's very easy to see the good guys versus the bad guys, but in this book, with all of our characters at different times in this book represent the ideology, and for different characters, especially for our point of view character, Smiley, Dieter represents a world stage power. Mrs. Fennon also has world stage ideals. And they eventually go against their ideals. Their ideals are sacrificed because they end up being human. Who is the gentleman at the end? Like you said, John, Dieter, according to Smiley, mm. should at any cost sacrifice humanity for this ideal. But then at the end, he's like, oh, he's going to privilege his friendship against this new world order. So even though there's yeah. all of this, these world powers, it is the characters are constantly going against the grain of what the world power is making them do.
0: Yeah, right. And they also maintain their own sort of like personal moralities as well. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's torture yeah. and smile at the end of the book that he forgot his own personal morality and just got caught, so caught up in the moment. So, so caught up in his own mission and his own job and his own ideology that he sort of lost sight of his soul, as it were.
1: Well, yeah. And he's the one who's saying, well, I, I believe in individuals. Yeah. And this, yeah. this guy's a monster. He's willing to kill anyone for his ideal. And then the monster drops the gun. And the lover of individuals shoots his old friend.
0: Yeah, this is a great point. I think it's really a strange way to end the book. Very morally ambiguous indeed. I think there's Mm. other moral ambiguities in the book as well. Like, you know, Smiley's obviously working for the British intelligence services. And he's working against a lot of German Mm. agents. And yet he himself is absolutely in love with the German enlightenment and German culture in general, German poetry. So I think here as well, it's, it's a lot. Because a lot of the books we've been reading, like all these spy books, I mean, I've been reading like British spy books from a particular, you know, mid to early 20th century era. And Germany, Germans are always the bad guys and the good guys are always these British guys. But here it's a lot more of a complex picture than, for example, the one we get in John Buchan's 39 Steps. Here, you might argue at the end that the German Dieter turns out to be a noble figure, or at least a gentlemanly and even,
2: yeah. you know,
0: kind of admirable one in a sense, despite his crimes. I mean, he does kill a woman, let's not forget. but still and, but yeah. and Smiley himself is absolutely taken with German culture and in a sense he almost seems to live his life wishing he'd just spent his life in academia studying German literature and German poetry rather than getting involved in politics, but obviously he couldn't resist. So I do think there's a lot more of an interesting and nuanced portrait of the relationship between the like British and German intelligence services than we've got in the previous books we've read for novels in this theme recently.
2: Absolutely. What, what do you think this love of German literature and especially poetry does for Smiley? I mean, like how does, how does this round out as, aside from everything you lined out, do you feel like there's anything specific that it adds or is it just like another layer of the kind of internal contradiction that drives Smiley?
0: I don't think it's just like his internal contradiction, but I think it's the only thing that really suggests that he he has passion that he feels passionate yeah. about anything, like you know, he doesn't express openly that much passion about politics. You know, like even when he's saying, you oh, know, individualism is what's given us the political sides we have, rada that. Right, right. He also still talks about how he hates mass media, so he still hates aspects of of his own of, of this political and social system that he's defending. You know, his wife leaves him, and he doesn't do anything to get her back. You know, he doesn't pursue her. He doesn't. And he just seems to take it passively. Like he says, like, if, if she was to ask for money for him, she, he would just give it to her. So he's got this kind of very passive attitude towards his ex-wife too. And it seems like the German literature is the only thing that he really solidly feels passionate about. You know, he, he has to refrain himself from talking about, oh, what research methods he thinks should be used and how it really pains him that research isn't being done in this nuanced field of his. So I do think... I. Give some passion to his character. It, it,
2: I I just remembered that one of the authors he he name drops is Goethe, and you just you, mm-hmm. you think of like one of Goethe's like trademark fictional books, The Sorrows of Young Werther, where it's like this first person account of someone who is, you know, desperately in love, just just with all you know with all abandon and their entire being in love, and they're they're rejected by by the other person, and they end up committing suicide you know, this kind of like, give everything to it. And if if you have nothing left to give, then give your life. And it's interesting how this is the like tone and tenor of the literature and culture that Smiley is obsessed with. But he himself approaches his love life like a reptile. He just lets his wife mm. walk away.
1: Hmm.
2: Until I suppose like the final, you know, resolution of the book when he decides to go after her in, in Zurich. But he, I mean, this is his character, like, cold and emotionless.
1: He, he does, when he f- talks about her at one point, though, he did court her for a long time. Like, he was romantically in love with her, and knowing that she was way out of his league, he still pursued her and pursued her. So, I think at one time, he mm-hmm. was a romantic. And now, looking back, he's become yeah. the lizard. And he is so passionate about German literature that becoming a spy, it was actually a huge disappointment in his life. He just wanted to keep studying. And then his professor is like, oh yeah, well, let's get you into uh, an interview for another program, a master's or a PhD. And then he's like, what, what the hell is this? And then it's a, a secret meeting to invite him into the secret service. And he feels like he's pushed into it. He doesn't want to do it. And then his cover is just to continue teaching German literature and recruiting these students. And he finds... The ultimate character, the ultimate romantic character in Dieter. Like, I think that's a nice way to set up Smiley to find this this Superman. Because when he first describes him, he says, quote, Dieter was a very handsome boy with a high forehead and a lot of unruly black hair. And he talks about him being such a large presence wherever he is, especially at the university. He says, naturally, he cut a rather romantic figure at a small university. They thought him Byronic, and so on. So he is... Smiley finds this kind of romantic reality in Dieter, even though it gets twisted later on. He does have, he gravitates towards these romantic figures.
0: Mm. And at the end,
2: he even
0: kills this figure.
2: Gravitates towards, uh, but but it feels like he has mm. like a voyeuristic, you know what I mean? Like he gravitates towards these figures, yeah. but not to become them, but simply to like yeah. watch them. He, there's always a barrier between... ...him and these other
1: people. He kind of cultivates them in a way, too. I wonder if that's different. If voyeurism and, like, cultivation different. He he, he helps Dieter. Dieter gets arrested when he's really young. And even that scene's really beautiful. He goes and sees... Smiley shows up at this small-town prison... ...and Dieter stands out like a superhero... ...like standing in, in a long line of prisoners. He does not look like he belongs there at all. And he <laughs> brings a bunch of books back to him... ...and helps him out once he gets out of prison... So he does kind of like, and, and he's a spy handler for lots of different spies. So maybe it's voyeurism, or maybe it's just knowing as like the critic of German literature how to bring people with this potential to become this romantic hero.
2: Do you feel like Anne fits into this model at all?
1: Well, with the when he's first courting her, I think so. But I don't know about her personality. I don't know, don't get a good impression of her. It's
0: hard because we only get ever get her like a, a, a second hand, don't we? Uh, you know, we see a letter that she sends, yeah. but really we only ever get her a very filtered view on her rather than a direct view. And we only ever see her through the perspective of an already cuckolded smiley. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And we see, we see the one, the dinner scene with the two of them, but she's just every, (laughs) the only lines she says are in response to smiley. And it's just to make smiley look bad. It's always like, Oh, you look like a toad. (laughs) Aren't you an ugly toad? (laughs) She's not very nice.
2: I just can't help but feel like his attraction to her. Like, all right. So, Her dropping everything to go pursue this like whim of a love interest, like to go to go chase after this Cuban race car driver is not a turnoff for Smiley. It's not a deal breaker. And I can't help but feel like there's some interrelationship here between this this German romanticism that he is so voyeuristically like like I suppose you could say intellectually invested in. And the woman who he, you know, is in love with enough to where she can do this, and he's still, yeah, you know. Do you think there's a masochistic yeah. element to his to his love for Anne? No, I don't. I don't think it's masochistic. I think it's the sense in which, if she became a like housewife, right, right, she, right. I, yeah, I don't know if he would find that like attractive. I don't think that would get yeah. his goat, so to speak. But right. If she. If if she marries him yet yeah, seemingly with you know, not reservations, but just you know, she's she's giving him a kick in the pants while she's marrying him, like, yeah. like you know, a toad and stuff, and then she runs away with someone else, there's a sense of which like that's the woman who he married and that that's who that's what he likes about her. He likes the whole package, infidelities and all.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's something quite it's it's you know, it's like He wants her to remain at a remove and at a level of almost like being idealized and not being domesticated. So, yeah, he's quite in a sort of a tragic position in some senses that you've mentioned here, where the, the woman he loves has to necessarily remain somewhat unattainable or a little bit beyond him. But for that reason, he can never really be content with her.
2: And an and almost like larger than life figure, I want to say, like like the woman chasing after her lusts. You know what I mean? Mm. Unfettered by the 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 shackles of marriage. You know what I mean? Yes. She's a free woman, free mm. to leave him and free to come back to him, and yes. he loves her all the same.
1: I feel maybe maybe I feel like to me Smiley feels like a beaten man, like he feels like a downtrodden man who's kind of given up, but is still kind of floating along doing what he expects he should be doing so maybe he's attracted to this promiscuity or I think he's just kind of grasping at straws anything to make him feel comfortable at this point the beginning of chapter 2 I really like and it kind of stuck with me and how I thought about him it starts with so smiley he felt safe in the taxi safe and warm the warmth was contraband smuggled from his bed and hoarded against the wet January night safe because unreal it was his ghost that ranged london streets so i feel like he might be able to hold on to this romanticism and this kind of larger than life wife but i think he just might be just grabbing for comfort at this point
2: you know you reading that just really cemented for me how good of a writer john Carre is and yeah
1: he's very good <laughs> i
2: was yeah. just like doing this screw face so i was like wow what a great yeah. right yeah.
1: yeah
2: for this being his first book you know what i mean like what isn't this his first
1: I didn't know that.
0: I think it was his first with George Damn. Smiley, but I, I didn't realize he was, it, was, it was one of his first bookstores. This time he was still working. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was literally John Carré's mm-hmm. first novel. All I'm his saying debut is novel. I think we He's, have yeah, a absolutely incredible road ahead of us of great, great books from John Carré. This is only the... We're only scratching the surface, I think, of how good John Carré gets because, yeah, some of the writing in this book is just breathtaking. And the story itself is is very compelling, but... You know, there's something above that, you know, concerning John Lacar's pen that's just so captivating. There
2: were two things, two stylistic techniques in this book that I did find, I don't want to say amateurish, but I'll just say like, you wouldn't see them in novels today. So like at the start Mm -hmm. of the book, he just has a whole chapter called A Brief History of George Smiley. And he just tells you everything there is to know about George Smiley. And then at the end of the book, he gives a recap of everything that happened in the book start oh, to finish yeah. i i appreciated both but both like in both those chapters i was like this is this is a th- like this is a technique <laughs> that is being applied here and i don't know if i see yeah. it being applied often
0: you know i think that yeah. is i I think that is a strength of this book to be mm. honest with you uh okay. yeah i think it's you know it's it, i thought i found it refreshing that constantly you just get these every now and then you just get these nice little summaries of what had happened so far in the plot. And at the end, you get a summary of the whole plot. And then he wraps the book up, you know, in terms of the emotional, like, you know, he wraps the character's own personal narratives up. And, you know, I think that that lack of obfuscation and lack of, I would even call it arrogance to be like, oh, I'm above giving hmm. a summary. I'm above introducing a right. character. You know, I, I find that quite tedious. So mm-hmm. I actually enjoyed this aspect of the book. It was very refreshing.
1: I did too, and I think you're right though, Zach. Like, that would be, if this was in a writer's workshop, everyone would say, well, the manual says to cut that, so the whole first chapter would be cut. But it's beautiful writing. Yes. It's very good writing. And the summary I found helpful. <laughs> I found it. I appreciated it. Because it, spy novels are hard to follow.
0: Yeah, exactly. A lot of spy novels get difficult to follow. And to be honest with you, I think, like, to, the reason I like it so much is this. Like, as much as I enjoy being you know, being kept guessing by a spy narrative. Ultimately, the plot alone is not really what you come to the book for. If you just want the plot, you can read the plot on Wikipedia or whatever, and you don't even need to read the book. You can spend five minutes reading the plot of the book and say, oh, great. So what if we did that? What if you picked up, what if you say, I want to read Call for the Dead? Okay, let me just read the plot summary online. Okay, great, now I've read Call for the Dead. Well, obviously not, because the plot is not everything about the book. In fact, it's only really the most basic substratum of what needs to be there for all of the real interesting things we're reading for to emerge. So for me personally, as a reader, I'm, I'm not trying to waste my mental energy understanding what's happening, right? Just give me a summary, tell me what's happened, right? Mm-hmm. Let me enjoy the nuances of the characters. Let me enjoy thinking about what that says about them. Let me enjoy pondering the atmosphere of the story, the things I actually care about. So to me, if th- these, this clarity on the plot really just allows me to focus more on the aspects of the book that make it stand out and make it remarkable, which, as Bob mentioned at the beginning of this episode, is the characters. Mm-hmm. Also, I just watched an interview that John le Carrier did in the 60s after just writing Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy before we started recording this episode. And he said that one of his the writers who most inspired him when he was beginning to write the George Smiley stories was Balzac.
2: Oh, interesting. Unreaded mm-hmm. Balzac.
0: Now, I've never read Balzac, but what John le Carrier said that he got from him was this notion that Balzac would, if he's going to set a scene, he would begin by describing all of the items in a room. And then in the corner of the room, he would find his character. And then he would describe his character from top to bottom. And then having given you all of this, what John le Carrier called in this interview, the arithmetic of the character, then he he let it play out. But what he wants to do is ultimately give the reader the arithmetic of the character. Like, why is he made That's up of That's interesting. I, th- I thought that was kind of a cool touch. Now, do, I do think that also is maybe mm-hmm. explains the origin of this approach of his.
1: Can I? I want to read an example of that, actually. There's when we first meet Elsa Fennon, which I think is the most, in, well, one of the most interesting characters in this book. She's the wife of the spy who's first murdered, and mm-hmm. she's helping the spy all along because. As she says, quote, he's like a child and forgets everything. He forgets his dossiers. He forgets important information. So she's the real spy. She's the real spy. But anyway, the first time we meet her, we get a description of her neighborhood. And then we get a description of her. But the beginning is, quote, Meridel Lane is one of those corners of Surrey where the inhabitants wage a relentless battle against the stigma of suburbia. The rusticity of the environment is enhanced by the wooden owls that keep guard over the names of houses and by the crumbling dwarves indefatigably poised over goldfish ponds. The inhabitants of Meridill Lane do not paint these dwarves, suspecting this to be a suburban vice, nor for the same reason do they varnish the owls. And then we get this description, basically, of someone in a corner. She might have been older than Fenon, a slight fierce woman with hair cut very short and dyed to the color of nicotine. Although frail, she conveyed an impression of endurance and courage, and the brown eyes that shone from her crooked little face were of an astonishing intensity. And she is just full of incredible ideas that give this book so much Mm. power.
0: Definitely. That's a great example of of that technique in action. This arithmetic of the character that I think he uses Mm. very well here. And yeah... This this character, Elsa, is such a fascinating character, isn't she? And I think, again, that's part of the ambiguity of the book. Yeah. She's the husband of Sam Fenman, who gets killed at the beginning of the book, or at least it seems that he's killed himself, but it turns out later on that he has, in fact, been murdered. And she is the first person that Smiley talks to at concerning this murder, and mm-hmm. he very much seems sympathetic to her. I mean, she was a Jew who was held in concentration camps, and she's really just been beaten down by life, you know she talks about how she wished she she dreamed as a girl of having like go, long golden you know hair and so forth, mm-hmm. and then her body had just been decimated by hunger for years and years by the Nazi regime and In the end of the book, when it's found out that she's actually very much involved with these German communists, it turns out she's not really doing it for ideological reasons. But she's doing it because she'd seen the same old nationalism merging once more in Germany, and she just couldn't stand it. And she could only, the only way out she could conceive of was a society, a sort of a world society where everyone just sort of cares for one another and everyone's kind of equal. And it wasn't it wasn't really any kind of political conviction; it was more just absolute desperation and sickness at the current state of things. And I think you know, although she definitely did was involved in the murder of this agent this sam fenman her husband she's and she's killed at the end of the book by Dieter. i do think she's a very sympathetic character throughout and i think again it adds to a lot like the moral ambiguity of the story
1: what's the there's the quote that i wanted to get into this episode yeah. where she talks about folders becoming people mm. i can't remember what she says and i can't find it
2: yeah i know which one you mean It's an old illness you suffer from, Mr. Smiley, she continued, taking a cigarette from the box, and I have seen many victims of it. The mind becomes separated from the body. It thinks without reality, rules a paper kingdom, and devises without emotion the ruin of its paper victims. But sometimes the division between your world and ours is incomplete. The files grow heads and arms and legs, and that's a terrible moment, isn't it? The names have families as well as records, and human motives to explain the sad little dossiers and their make-believe sense. You know, this quote really reminds
0: me too of Alman in Havana. This idea of the files growing heads and arms and legs in this paper kingdom very much reminds me of Wormold in the last episode's book, "Alman in Havana," by Graham Greene. He himself writes into existence these sort of paper heroes of his story these agents who are apparently giving him information and then real people of those names and descriptions mm. start start being killed
1: yeah and
0: start being put in genuine jeopardy so again it's a situation where someone is yeah. you know contriving a narrative as if they were just dealing with characters out of a book and then real world consequences
2: start happening for real people and it seems like the same dynamic is happening here. As his friend, Dr. Hasselbacker says, I have never known a novelist, wormold except for you. (laughs) Right, exactly, yeah. (laughs) yeah. And here we have, in real life,
0: John le Carré is, in fact, the novelist who is also a spy. But it definitely seeps through, you know, in this past, especially to the story itself.
2: Any final thoughts on this book, guys?
0: Yeah, all it it says to me is that I really can't wait to read some more John le Carré. The characters, the plot, super engaging, just his writing is so ambiguous and so rich and complex and i think it just
2: really captivated me i would say yeah it feels like the crystallization of everything we've read before and then it you know it transcends mm. all of it you know what i mean like
0: yeah and i think it marri- i think the story manages to be a kind of parody and a critique of the spy business just like alman in havana is but without rendering it ridiculous, right. you know, without forgetting mm-hmm. the, the real drama and stories right. that are involved in the characters that are actually acting this, this drama out.
1: Yeah, I felt, although Our Man in Havana was really fun, I do feel like the characters were occasionally thrown under the bus for the sake of mm-hmm. the parody or the satire. Yeah. But in this, yeah. the characters have so many dimensions, like there's so many aspects to these characters. Some are very dramatic, some are just really sweet some are big and powerful. There's some real mastery in this book.
0: Ah, oh, definitely, definitely. All right, talk
1: to you later, Bob and Jack. Talk to you later, John Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.